All right. Guys, I feel like the high five got a bad rap this last year. I think it's time for it to come back. <laughs> Poor guy. Hey, uh, I'm super glad you're here. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but for me, uh, Lindsay and I last week were talking. I think it was after last week's five o'clock service that uh, she was like, how did it go? I'm like, I have no idea. Uh, people look like they were either crying or allergies were hitting, but I can't see if they were frowning or smiling. So I'm super glad to at least kind of have an idea at this point what's going on in front of me. Um, I'm so glad that you guys are here with us tonight as we continue to look at uh, this book called Acts. And uh, one of my favorite people in the entire Bible, maybe after Jesus, my favorite, uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, the words that we're going to be looking at tonight. Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to look at a couple pretty big, uh, pretty lengthy scripture passages. At the end of boiling those passages down, we're really talking about the concept of joy tonight. I know for any of us who have been in church for any amount of time, we've probably heard talks on joy several times. I know for me personally, I've heard this happiness versus joy talk many, many times in my life. Right? The idea, it's really important. It's an idea that we distinguish this temporary feeling of happiness with a mindset of joy, something that's deep and lasting, right? That's down, down in our heart to stay, right? It's that kind of thing. And so I'm not going to harp on that or dwell on that tonight because I don't want to stall on it. I want to talk about some other things with it. But I do want to use an example of that difference between happiness and joy real quick to get us kicked off. Uh, So for me, one of my favorite things in life is to watch over and over and over again comedies from like the late 90s when I was in high school. So some of you probably hate them. Some of you probably are judging me right now, but they're movies like Dumb and Dumber, uh, Happy Gilmore, which I think I watched every day for two years in in college. And to me, the king of them all is Billy Madison, which is horrific. So I, but, but watching them for me brings me temporary happiness over and over again. And it's temporary. I know it's temporary, but it's a sweet spot of this like hour and 20 minutes. If it goes any more than that, I'm not going to watch it. But these kings right here entertained my childhood. And for me, I think back and I just get happy thinking about some of these dumb things that they say and do in these movies. Joy for me is something that happened this last week. So I I get a text message randomly from one of my college roommates, a guy named Ethan, that I hear from, usually on our birthdays, we'll trade like... uh, We'll trade like gifts of Billy Madison or something on our birthdays. But I get out of nowhere a a text from him that is so great. It it sparks great joy in me for a couple of reasons. And it's because it's the connection that recalls the times that I spent with him, right? Uh, It reminds me of the times that we laughed and and we a couple of times cried, him, not me, and uh, spent, spent my early years following Jesus with him as the person who kind of showed me what that was about. So I get this text just out of nowhere uh, this week from him, that's a, a quote from one of our favorite movies. It's like, um, some of you won't understand this, but it's like, ding, Billy likes soda, is the text that I get. And then like, it'd be like at this other time, I'll get a text from nowhere, I'll, ding, uh, big gulps, huh? Something like that. Or ding, fat guy in a little coat. And if you know the movies, you know the quotes. As you can tell, it's a very spiritual example that I'm sharing with you tonight. But I want to work our way to why this idea of joy comes up tonight at all. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, this part of the book, uh, the, this part of the Bible called Acts that, that we've been going through for about, I don't know, six weeks now. And it's the early church. It's tracing the, the foundation, uh, the, the leadership choices. It's chasing the, the early opposition. And we meet Saul. And we meet Saul. And I, and if you were, I think it was this service that I, I, interchanged, I interchanged Saul and Paul about a thousand times. But I'm going to do that again tonight. But there's a reason for it now. We see Saul, who last week goes from being a persecutor and frankly, a terrorist uh, against the followers of Jesus who are known as The Way, capital W, The Way. And he goes from persecuting them, tracking them down, seeking to eradicate them. He, he literally wanted to kill each and every one of them to becoming one of them, to becoming part of their group. 
So Saul, along the course of Acts, starts to be called Paul, like I said. And it's, it's pretty unceremonious. So as I got ready to talk about the change of his name, uh, Luke just happens to mention him, calls him Paul all of a sudden out of nowhere. And I was kind of like, oh, okay. So I did some research on it, and I, and I found out that Paul is his, is his Roman name because he was a citizen of Rome, and Saul is his Jewish name because he was born, born a Jewish Pharisee. And so he just gets to have a name that rhymes, which is pretty cool. But Paul is how I'm going to mostly refer to him tonight from this point forward. The part of the story from last week that I want to circle back to to kind of start us off tonight is the part where Jesus appears and instructs his follower, uh, a man named Ananias, to go and find Saul and to tell him, amongst other things, this. Uh, So let's read it together. He tells him, this man, Paul, Saul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. And And to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Right? If you were here last week, I said, we're going to circle back to that next week. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're told here that, that Saul is the primary person that Jesus has decided to entrust this message with. The continuation of this message that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. That these people have waited generations for. That Jesus came and he lived a sinless life and he died. That Jesus rose from the grave and defeated sin and death for all time. And, and, and he wants Paul to be the carrier of that message to the non-Jewish world, which is something that would have been unthinkable prior to this. The divide between the Jewish world and the Gentile world is greater than any other cultural divide in this time. You take any two groups of people and to the Jewish people to to lower their their standards, to, to interact and to say that their message and their faith and their religion and their way of life is available to a Gentile was unthinkable. And in the fray of this and this tension, Jesus chooses Paul to be the person to carry the message. Between Acts 9 and the end of it, which is Acts 28, we have 19 chapters that are mostly Paul. Some of them are focused more on Peter. They show Paul going from corner of the known world to corner of the known world. He's under constant threats of death and beatings. He's he's arrested multiple times. There's other challenges that are kind of combinations of both religious and political things because as we looked at last week, those things are conceptually intertwined in this ancient world that Saul lives in if they aren't now. So really quickly, some of the stories that I'm kind of passing through tonight. If you're old enough and you're like my age or older, you remember Cliff's Notes? This is kind of Cliff's Notes for some of the things that we're skipping in Acts. Paul has a couple different encounters with false prophets. And, and, and he sees them spreading lies and he decides to put an end to it and he does. Paul at one point is mistaken by the Greeks for a god and given offerings and has to explain to them the difference. At, point, at one point, Paul has to play dead to ward off an attack. He's arrested another time for saving a girl out of this sort of satanic slavery. He endures this earthquake when he's in prison that was God's way of freeing him. And the prison guard is so taken aback that God would do something like that that he asks to hear more about this Jesus and how he saves. Paul dodges a mob that follows him through a few cities. We're talking miles and days of walking just to try to kill him. Uh, He has to travel at night to avoid detection. He takes this unnamed vow that they, they don't tell us what the vow is that he took, but we know that because of it, he had to shave his head. I would imagine he probably looked pretty good. So that's what happened there. <laughs> he faces this big division when a preacher named Apollos shows up that people kind of seem to, to have more, more of a connection to and like listening to more. And over and over again, he plants churches in city after city in both the Jewish and the Greek world. He makes silversmiths angry when he tells them that the gods that they're carving aren't real gods. And one of my favorite stories that I wish I could preach a whole night on 
is the story that happens in Acts 20, where Paul's talking, and, and the, the scripture tells us that it says, quote, he's talking on and on. That's the quote from it. This kid's sitting in a windowsill listening to him, and he falls asleep because it's so boring, and he plummets to his death, right? I won't do that to you tonight. This is a short message, okay? So Paul saves his life, brings it back to life, and he uses it as a teaching moment. And there's much, much more, of course, contained in there. But all along this time in this way, Paul is spending his time debating and preaching in synagogues. He takes the message of Jesus as the Messiah straight to the gathering place of Jewish, of Jewish life, the place that their entire life centers on in every city that he goes to. Then so he takes, in, in the Greek cities, he takes it to the public squares where people would sit in their form of inter- entertainment and their, their form of, of really, honestly, life was debating philosophy. So he'd show up there and he'd debate them in the ways that they, and and use their texts and use their language and use their culture to argue and convince people that Jesus really is God, that Jesus really is who he says he is. And then he doesn't just do that. He leaves behind trained leaders who start and run these small churches that are a result of all the work that Paul does on the front end. So Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, but also wrote Acts, says things like this. He'll say, Paul went as usual, to the Jewish synagogue. And as the custom was, he preached in the synagogue. So Luke's trying to set up that Paul established this pattern in every town that he went to, mostly in trading cities and trading routes, staying anywhere from a few days to a few months to even a few years in some cases, just to convince people that Jesus really is real and to form a real community around it. He didn't just convert people and leave. He talked about what it really meant. And as the message came to him from Jesus through this messenger back in Acts 9, we find out that Paul suffered in different ways. He was told that he would, and we see him do it over and over. So what exactly was this suffering, right? The last several weeks, we've looked at some of it. We've read and studied some stories of the early church and the beatings and the imprisonments and some of the other means of persecution. But Paul, in his letters later on to these scattered churches that he started in the book of Acts, they're named after cities that he planted in them, like Galatia and Philippi and Ephesus and Rome and Corinth and many others. He writes these letters back to these churches to instruct them or to challenge them or to encourage them, usually all three. In these letters, we get to see multiple examples of some of the things that Paul encountered and went through in his travels and his ministry. So in the letter to the, to the Corinthians, the second one, he has this list of qualifications and accolades that he's lived through. And the reason that he does this, we're about to read it together, and the reason that he does this is because uh, in Corinth, a false teacher has uh, shown up on the scene. And this person has tried to make his way to break in with the church and take it over. And this, this preacher had this habit of bragging about himself and talking about how great he was and what a great teacher he was and how everybody should follow him. So Paul's telling this church, he says, here's how you can spot the difference between somebody like that and a real apostle. So these are his words. He says this. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one, which is a a law that's meant to restrain how far somebody can be beaten. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. When I taught middle school, they loved that line. They thought that was great. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. 
He's got other lists like this in other letters, but this is the one I chose for tonight. And when I read that, this is what I think. For me, any one of these themes would be unrecoverable for me, honestly. I mean, even if I just pick out one of them and I look at a night and a day at sea, when I think about a shipwreck and I'm treading water for a couple days, when I conceptualize that, all I can think of is that movie from a couple years ago called Open Water where they, they never show the sharks show up, but you're just terrified for the entire two hours that something's gonna happen, which I think maybe was worse. That's not for me. It makes me freak out just a little bit even thinking about it. See, Paul, he, he's, he's listing these things that are physical, these things that sometimes are emotional or mental, but all of them are wrapped in something spiritual. See, Paul's point to the Corinthians here is this. He's, he's making, he makes it in other letters other ways, but here he's saying this. He's saying the only accomplishments that are worthy of bragging about, so opposed to this other teacher that keeps bragging about how great he is, he's saying the only thing worth bragging about are things that further the kingdom of God. If it's about one person over the kingdom, about anything other than just the kingdom, it's not worth following. I know that the last couple of weeks, or like probably this whole series, I've been having a little bit of fun at the expense of the fact that I don't suffer very much in the modern world, right? I mean it, I really don't. But I have an example for it, and it's kind of a, couched in a little bit of a metaphor, and it's this. I love being outside. It's like, today was a glorious day, guys. How beautiful was today, right? I, I got to, I went on a little, I call it a run. You guys would call it a walk. Um, I, I spent some time on my back patio. It was beautiful. I loved it. I love being outside. I love hiking. Uh, I love visiting beaches. I love that I get sunburned in about five minutes, even after 10,000 SPF goes on my skin. I, I love everything about it. I love the views when I'm hiking. A couple of weeks ago, I got to take my oldest kid. Uh, my buddy got married in Moab, and I got to go there for a couple of days. We went to Moab. Look at this. He got married like right there, which is insane. Um, and we hiked. We just got to hike for a few days. And I think this, I think all those really good things about being outside and this metaphor that I'm building here, those are the, the things like Jesus' grace and peace and love, right? Like they just feel good and I, and I get them and I want more of them. But for me, the suffering part of this metaphor would be camping because I hate it. <laughs> I, I, I don't like to camp. I don't like sleeping on the ground. I don't like anything about it. So for this trip to Moab, I, I told Zane, my son, I said, Let's go hike all day for a few days, but we stayed in a hotel and it was fantastic because I didn't have to do the suffering part of it. I took the easy way out. We hiked all day. I went back to the hotel room. I watched the nuggets on a giant screen and I fell asleep in a bed that I didn't have to make the next day. It was wonderful. It's absolutely great. But I feel like if Paul was in my shoes, that probably what he would have done is drag like a bed of nails all the way to the bottom of that, of that, canyon, uh, that canyon and sleep there because he knew that suffering leads to something better. But here's what I want to say about all that, because I have been poking fun at the fact that I don't suffer. I think this is the truth. The truth is this, our trials and our pain and suffering, even if they don't seem to meet or exceed stuff that we see in the Bible, whether it's Paul or Jesus himself or other people in the Bible that, that we read about and look, and look up to, just because they don't seem to match or exceed those things that they endured, it doesn't mean that they aren't significant and that they don't matter. The things that we go through and the things that we suffer, the things that we feel, they are significant because they're real and because they're ours and because we move through them. They matter. So when we're in the midst of some personal suffering, whether it be mental or emotional or physical or spiritual, it can be really lonely or it can be really isolating. It can feel like defeating. And sometimes it can even feel like nobody in the world cares about it. It's just us. And that's no small thing. I think Paul understands that mindset. 
He writes in a few places about some ways that he combats that mindset. He, can, he combats that defeated feeling, that, that idea that with suffering and other trials that we're in a really bad spot and we can't get past it. He really gives us this window into the tactics that he used to carry him forward through that entire list of suffering that he gave us. It's from a book called Philippians, and he, he says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, right? So return to joy. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm going to get back to this in a second. I want to read that again. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen, seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. So there's a lot there. So I want to zero in a couple things because there's so much going on. See, Paul, through this entire Acts narrative, again, I just want to set the picture, is being stalked by death. And maybe in some ways he's being stalked by something worse than just dying because he's being beaten physically, and being emotionally tortured, being spiritually, uh, spiritually suffering over and over again. He's been disowned and disavowed by his family, right? We looked at that last week. Not only would he be unwelcome in the home that he grew up in, but the community and the people that he spent all this time around, his religious identity as a Pharisee, uh, that had been taken from him as well. And some of you, and I, I know some of your stories, some of you know very well what that feels like. You know what it's like to be ostracized and sent away from things that really matter to you or to lose things that you had no power to keep, right? You know what it's like going through it and it's not light. Paul's been constantly disparaged with rumors and stories that aren't even remotely true. And I imagine sometimes those things discourage him and sometimes those things make him laugh, but they always matter. And in 2 Corinthians, he even talks about this recurring malady of some sort. We don't know that much about it. I've read a lot of different theories about what it is, but we know this. It was debilitating, and he described it as a thorn in his side. Paul suffered in ways that I can only start to imagine. But we see here in this Philippians passage that he has a means to move through all of it, a solution for his own life that changes it. And it's really simple. So what we started with is joy. He says, rejoice always. He tells us to trade anxiety for thanksgiving, which I think is way easier said than done. And I think if I could talk back to Paul, I would tell him that, right? But I know this, I know both by like statistics and by just talking to people in this room and people that I know that many of us struggle with anxiety every single day. I, I used to think I didn't struggle with anxiety until uh, last March when COVID hit. And every day I would sit in my home office and I would just be reading book after book and pretending to work and hoping, you know that old thing where they go, uh, Jesus is coming, look busy? That's what I did for COVID. I was terrified that people would like, be like, what are you doing right now? I'd be like, uh, nothing. 
<laughs> nothing. And I would, I would be convinced that I had a tight chest, right, and a fever, and I'd be like, is this what shortness of breath feels like? And I'd go check my, my temperature. Cole, my friend Cole here did this with me. We'd text each other. Every single time it was like 97.3, right, over and over again. But I, I felt it. I felt this anxiety. At one point I told Josie, I think I'm short of breath, and she just told me, that's your anxiety. And I felt very attacked, right? Because not me, I'm good. I'm happy, I'm good. But I've noticed this since then. I've noticed that I have patterns of anxiety in my life. And I've noticed now that when I'm stressed or I'm sad or any number of other things, I still feel that same way, right? Even after we've moved through this time and I'll break HIPAA and tell you I've been vaccinated and I'm in the spot where I still keep going, I think I have it. I got this tightness of chest. I got this shortness of breath. And Josie will say, well, what are you worried about? I'm like, well, nothing. (laughs) The truth is I am, right? It feels like life's closing in a little bit sometimes. And I think this season, some of us, myself included, have figured out that there's some stuff that we need help with. So if I did say that back to Paul in my fantasy world, in my office when I'm doing that, Paul's wise. I think he'd anticipate that reaction. So he really says this. This is what he says back to us in essence. God will give you a peace that makes no sense to us because the joy that comes to us is Jesus's protection on our hearts. That's really what he's saying in there. I love that. See, he doesn't just leave it right there. He doesn't just say that. He gives us a next step. How do I apply that? How do I grab a hold of joy and put it into my life? How do I return to joy after I've been crushed or beat down or abandoned? Or even if I just felt like those things happened? So I want you to do this with me. Would you run kind of in the space of your own heart and mind, the silence that you have with nobody else listening in the middle of this week? Would you just run with me real quick through your own hearts and minds the things that bring you real joy. Maybe some happiness, but real joy. Things you can return to over and over again that make you remember that life is okay and Jesus is good. For me, it's, it's a handful of songs, right? It's Josie and it's my kids, and particularly thinking about my kids when they were little. It cracks me up. My puppy, we got a COVID puppy like the rest of you. and Her name's Ruby, and she's wonderful. The season of summer, my close friends that, that love and care for me, Anytime the Dodgers lose. Like these are the things that bring me great joy, right? So for you, whatever that is, whatever runs through your heart and runs through your mind, Paul tells us this, he says, rejoice. And he says, and then he says this, he says to put a list of things into practice to take action in that joy. And that list is this, anything that is true and noble and right, that is pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. He says to focus on the things that are well and good instead of those things that are not, which I personally am really bad at. Some of you maybe are as well. It's really easy for me to go dark and go straight to the things that aren't going well. I think Paul writing this probably knew that, and my guess would be that he probably was wired the same way, but he gave himself these things to remember to help train himself out of that mindset into something better, something filled with joy. And that's why he can write this. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances, whatever comes along, whatever he's going through. Because Paul knows that returning to joy leads to strength that's only through Jesus. So when he tells us this, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, he's saying that the joy of Jesus is my strength. And it carries me through every situation that I've been in and that I will face in the future. And here's what it's not saying. I want to be really careful here. It's not saying this. It's not Paul saying, so just get over it. That's not what he's doing. 
It's not saying that no real Christian, no real Jesus follower can possibly struggle with anxiety or doubt or hardship. That's not what he's saying. That's not true. It's certainly not telling us that God's punishing people for wrongdoing and bringing those things on us. Paul would never teach that. That's false teaching. Paul actually dispels those kind of things. He's saying this, suffering is a natural part of life. But Paul says, just as he joined Jesus in his sufferings, when we suffer for righteous things, but we return to joy, we get led back to the best we can have in Jesus as the savior and the victor over all those things. So wherever those things originate, whether it's something we chose or something that was inflicted upon us, it's all navigable. That's our challenge. Our challenge as people who follow Jesus is to figure out how to navigate all of the negatives in our life. I think it's more than just throwing up a sign in the kitchen and, and hoping that that verse will spur us on to think I can do all things. It's more than just writing it on some eye black if you're playing football. And the real question is, can we hear, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength and then put it into practice? Can we take those true, noble, pure things and focus on them to return to joy in Jesus alone? So Kindred, whether your life is a, a shipwreck and you're treading water, or your life's speeding along and everything's going well, whether you feel so alone and isolated and angry, or whether you're surrounded with so many people that love you that sometimes you can't even find a place to escape, Jesus promises us this. He promises us a joy that transcends our circumstance. And it's not easy, necessarily. It doesn't end our hardships, necessarily. But it gives us this pathway through all of them by returning to the joy that we have in Jesus and Jesus alone. So would you guys stand with me as I pray and we continue to worship Jesus who gives us joy and strength. God, I'm so thankful tonight to be in a room with people that I love, people who are focused and dedicated on stumbling after you. And God, we do it okay some days. We do it well other days. And a lot of days I, I don't do it so well. But God, as I look at Paul's life, the things that he had to endure, both physically, but also mentally and spiritually, and the way that he was able to find this pathway through joy to return again and again to the idea that you sustain him, that you carry him. God, that you, can, you help him to defeat all things and to do all things through Jesus. I pray tonight we'd be challenged to be the kind of people who don't understand the peace that we have, but have our hearts guarded by it. That Jesus is the defender of the place in us that's tempted to be discouraged or to give up and to know instead that through him we can win. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, through his Holy Spirit that he left us, we can continue to strive and push for even better things. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.